Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm John Perry. I'm Ted Cupper. And today we are discussing the current conversation around AI risk. Okay, welcome back to the show. And today John is going to tell us about some AI risk articles that he read that uh, he really didn't like. Okay, so I want to check in on the topic of AI risk, the scary artificial intelligence argument that's out there about how the robots may rise up and and kill us all. I'm sure our listeners are familiar with it. We've talked about it on the podcast in a couple episodes. We talked about it with Calm Chase in episode 64. We talked about it way back in episode 6 in an episode on the intelligence explosion. Boom. Exactly. Yeah, I remember that. Um, so I assume our audience is, is at least generally familiar with this. Obviously, famously, uh, Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking and Bill Gates and people are out there sounding the alarm about this. I don't. I think it's fair to assume you're not listening to this podcast if you haven't at least considered the possibility that robots may one day rise up and turn us all into paperclips or whatever. Exactly. Now, uh, I do not necessarily 100% buy the argument. The best form of the argument, as it's put out, um, probably the, the the best version of it that you can find easily is in the book Superintelligence by Nick Bostrom. Right. The best version of the argument, I think, is actually pretty compelling. Um, and what I'm interested in is there being a good uh, cultural conversation about this topic that uh, where people are saying smart things on both sides and we're actually debating this. And I'm a little frustrated because it doesn't feel like the conversation has gotten that much better. I mean, in some ways it has. Obviously, more people are aware of this, thanks to people like Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking and so on. The the width of the conversation has gotten wider. Exactly. More, more people are discussing this. But I don't feel like more people are actually engaging with, again, the strong form of the argument that comes from people like Nick Bostrom in the book Superintelligence, and also Eliezer Yudkowsky is the other big person that's been pushing forward this argument for years now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I saw you tweeting about this. I think, uh, what was it, Ted Chang or somebody? Yeah, so there's been two different articles uh, that came out recently. And there's been a lot more than that. I'm just going to talk about these because they're very high-profile authors, and they came out relatively recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're both from smart people that I have some respect for. The first was by Ted Chang, and the other is by Steven Pinker. Oh, right, right. Um, so I'll talk about the Ted Chang one first. Ted Chang is one of my favorite working authors at the moment. Uh yeah, if listeners aren't familiar, he wrote the short story that Arrival is based on, which is called The Story of Your Life. Yeah, and and uh, here's the thing is if you liked Arrival, I thought it was a, a pretty good movie. Um, I mean, a lot of people really liked that movie, but to me, that was actually based upon what I thought was the weakest story in that collection. Mm-hmm. So if you thought Arrival was pretty good, you should read that whole collection because they get even better than that. Um, it's a very, very strong collection of stories that he's written. Yep. Yeah, he's got a real good style, and he does a real thoughtful kind of sci-fi. Yeah, but I was not a big fan of this article, which uh, appeared on BuzzFeed, incidentally. (laughs) So I guess that's not an auspicious beginning. Well, it's not my favorite publication, but sometimes it's good. Sometimes they do good stuff. Yeah, Yeah. so um, now I, I think if I give this article the most possible credit, I think that what might have happened is that Ted Chang wanted to criticize the tech companies in Silicon Valley, which is a criticism that probably should be made. There are reasons to criticize these companies or to be concerned about them, Mm -hmm. Um, or at least that's a discussion we should be having. So he wanted to make this uh, criticism, and he decided that the way to get people's attention online was to sort of weave it into this AI discussion and maybe create a headline that would grab more readers. So it's possible that Ted Chang really wanted to talk about his critique of Silicon Valley and capitalism, and he, he wrapped it up in this AI thing as a way to sort of sell it and get people to click on it. Mm-hmm. And if that's what he's doing, okay. I, I don't think that's a great strategy. I'm not super happy with the results, but that makes me uh, still feel okay about Ted Chiang because sure. otherwise it's a pretty vapid article, I think. So go over a little bit what the article says because I haven't read it. Okay, so the title of the article is Silicon Valley is turning into its own worst fear and um okay it's structured around an analogy 
Actually, before I get to the analogy, let's talk about how the article begins. Uh, it begins by providing a description of the disaster scenario where AIs, you know, turn the whole world into paper clips. That's the usual mm-hmm. description. Although he talks about strawberry fields instead, okay. which I guess is paraphrased from Elon Musk. I've never heard that version of the argument where the AIs turn the whole world into strawberry fields. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's a reference to the Beatles song. It must be <laughs> strawberry fields forever. Okay. Uh, they so. just they just really misinterpreted those lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> so uh, John right. Lennon changed the utility function of the AI, and now it's just mindlessly converting us all into um, strawberry fertilizer. Well, maybe you know when John Lennon did acid, he saw the future of AI, and he knew that's what that song has. <laughs> he was warning us been about. Yeah, that's the Grant Morrison version of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So at the beginning of the article, he kind of <laughs> lays out this concern. Oh, you know, people in Silicon Valley. Uh, they're they're concerned about this thing about you know AIs taking over and turning the world into strawberry fields and isn't that silly? Now already there's a problem because Silicon Valley is of course a place. It's not really like I don't know. I mean it, it's hard to talk about it as a group as thinking something. And really um, these arguments aren't strictly coming out of Silicon Valley. You know Nick Bostrom is a philosopher in Oxford. Um, and, uh, Stephen Hawking is, is also English, I believe. No, only Elon Musk is a Silicon Valley insider among these folks. And I know Eliezer Yudkowsky lives in the Bay Area, but I think he's from Chicago originally. And I I don't think he's worked for any tech companies that I know of. Right. So he's maybe part of Bay Area culture. Well, some of this movement is, um, is, uh, what do you call it? Like, you know, runs, uh, parallel to the tech companies that are in Silicon Valley, like the, some of the people who are transhumanist or singularitarian or interested in AI risk or whatever you want to call them, uh, do live there like a, a proportionately high number. Um, there is some crossover, but they're not exactly the same subculture. No. One the- is the business subculture up in the Bay area. And one is a kind of intellectual subculture that's up in the Bay area that, that they have some natural affinity for each other. Cause smart nerds happen to be involved in both but it's not they're not really directly related yeah so it's already a bit tricky to just say that silicon valley thinks this about ai when you know and there's certainly not consensus in silicon valley about this i mean many of the people that most oppose this idea actually are also in silicon valley and they're interested in opposing right. it because it makes them look bad. It makes them look like they're trying to end the world. Right. The, the, the accurate way to describe it is Silicon Valley is thinking about this at all. <laughs> because they actually <laughs> think about technology. Well, yeah. because they deal in technology. They yeah. literally build it and deploy it uh, for business purposes. So they are um, they are thinking day in and day out about both how it makes them look and how it makes them money. And those are the kinds of questions that would lead you to think about like what will happen when this gets better. <laughs> right. Um, so, of course... People in Silicon Valley are discussing this topic, but I think you're right. It's not anything clear, like a consensus there. But but he paints with this broad brush and says, you know, okay, Silicon Valley is concerned about AI, you know, turning the world into strawberry fields. Okay. Um, or the universe into strawberry fields. That uh, would actually be quite impressive. Um, and so, and he, he sort of, so he lays out that sort of simple version of the argument. Sure. Um, where the AI just is dedicated to this one task of making strawberry fields until it's done and everything has been turned into that. Um, and then he draws an analogy with that to sort of runaway capitalism. Um, and, and this part I'm going to quote. So he, he writes, quote, who pursues their goals with monomaniacal focus, oblivious to the possibility of negative consequences? Who adopts a scorched earth approach to increasing market share? This hypothetical strawberry-picking AI does what every tech startup wishes it could do, grow it in an exponential rate, and destroys its competitors until it's achieved an absolute monopoly. Um, And he goes on from there. So he's basically saying, this kind of resembles what corporations do, particularly these tech corporations, although I don't think this behavior is exclusive to tech corporations, to be honest. That's the other problem, right? Is that It also sounds like what a dictator does or... Even just like a successful warring tribe. Right, right. Um, But now, so drawing an analogy is really not a great way to make an argument. Like you can't, so like he kind of wants to say like, we don't like this behavior in, you know, when it happens in capitalism, when these runaway monopolies, um, and we also wouldn't like it if an AI did it. I don't know. It's sort of a shaky connection. Um, but what he he's really trying to do with it is he he's there's some sort of psychoanalyzing that's at the core of this article. Like he thinks that um, I'm just going to jump to a quote that he uses later, 
that like Silicon Valley tries when when Silicon Valley tries to imagine super intelligence, what it comes up with is no holds barred capitalism. Um, and he sort of says like they imagine this like demon in their in their own image um, or a devil in their own image, a boogeyman whose excesses are precisely their own. Uh huh. So he's like imagining that they're projecting themselves. Sure. Which I don't even know if that makes sense psychologically. Um, like like even if we sort of grant that it's possible that like they're used to thinking in these terms. Uh huh. Um, is that what they would be afraid of is themselves? I don't think that. I just think it shows that they are literally trapped inside such a narrow way of thinking that they can, they can only imagine a, a kind of capitalistic, uh, competitive, um, monstrous intelligence. Okay, sure. I, I, to me, it just feels like a failure of imagination. And as far as an argument against AI risk, it seems utterly inert, but as far as just an argument about how tech, company ceos might be it doesn't feel totally off base to me right but see what he wants to say is that be, they like he wants to sort of imagine what's going on in the mind of these sort of silicon valley people that sure. he sort of invented and he imagines that in their mind they have this limited way of thinking that makes them sort of concoct this this evil ai theory sure um but the thing about that is like he's that has no bearing on whether it's true he's he's claiming to like psychoanalyze an entire place an entire culture a culture yeah and like see into their mind and know that when they claim they're scared of ai oh really it's just them projecting their worldview like externally or something it to me it seems like how would you know that that's so arrogant to claim that yeah yeah it's a strong claim i i haven't read the piece so i'm just reacting to how you're phrasing it yeah yeah the way that you're phrasing it it doesn't strike me as an implausible claim but it doesn't strike me as a a supported claim either the bigger issue with it though is that it does not affect on any level whether whether this is true or not because whether your culture gives you the insight to describe things correctly or whether it fails to give you Mm -hmm. the insight to describe things correctly has no bearing on how the things are right so so uh if if he's really using that as an argument against worrying about ai risk then that's um a tremendous logical problem i think yeah and that's my biggest problem with the article again if he wants to go after capitalism runaway capitalism and tech companies and and level a critique there and and do that honestly and directly i'm fine with that but in the process he sort of ridicules this ai risk argument which i think is worth having a serious discussion over and not just dismissing as being clearly wrong because it vaguely resembles runaway capitalism yeah um and, you know, I mean, there's other parts in the article that I disagree with, but that's that's the basic gist of it. Um, although, you know what? There is one more thing I want to talk about in this article before I move on, because oh, well. he, he does talk about insight. Right. This is this is, I think, worth discussing because this is a kind of mistake that other people make. Right. OK. Um, so he says at one point in psychology, the term insight is used to describe a recognition of one's own condition. Okay. So he kind of defines it as self-awareness, self-reflectiveness. Right. What am I doing? Who am I? Okay. Okay. Um, and then he says the best test of whether an AI is really engaging in human level cognition would be for it to demonstrate insight of this kind. Now, there's already a problem here because we're not talking about human level AI. We're talking about well beyond human level AI in terms of the kinds of AI we're actually scared of. Right. Um. But yeah, it makes sense that if humans have this so-called insight self-awareness, that something that's well beyond human level would also have that insight. So far, this makes a certain amount of sense. But then he says, how can these AIs basically be beyond human level, but lack the insight to step back and ask if what they are doing is good? Mm -hmm. Now, this to me seems like a fundamental confusion between insight as he described it, which is self-awareness, and the idea of doing the good thing. Or even the idea of good. Or even the idea of good, period. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, these are totally separate. Right. You could be totally self-aware, well, step that, back. Well, that's called morality, right? Not right. insight. So he, like, yeah. defines insight one way, and then later he kind of, like, morphs it into some sort of sense of morality. Right. And, like, he just, that's just a sneaky move that I feel like is is disingenuous um, and just and just bad <laughs> argumentation. It's just bad logic. If you start with the idea that, I think you can't have a human level AI until it is both insightful, self-aware and moral, mm-hmm. then all right, well then that's what you think. That's an okay postulate to start from and we can yeah, yeah. talk about that and whether something meets that. Um, 
I might say, well, I don't think that matters. I think you just have to demonstrate some competence on some tasks mm-hmm. at human level. And, you know, if it's a certain percentage of tasks, I'll buy it. You know, like mm-hmm. that might be my metric. Uh, but but I can understand why you might want to see those specific uh, things replicated, which seem somehow unique to humans. Uh, right. Like among animals. So I get that. I can understand why that would be somebody's point of view. But um, they they have decided that what they're doing is good. That's the problem. They've decided that strawberry fields paper clips or strawberry fields are good because they uh, satisfy their um, their requirements for what means good in their mind. And and we know that among humans, good is malleable to some degree. Mm-hmm. So of course they could just think the wrong thing is good, and then think about what they're doing and think it's good, and still turn us all into strawberry fields. Yeah. So so one version of the strawberry AI. <laughs> Or, which we'll call Lucy okay. for the purposes of this discussion. It's the AI in the sky. Yeah, yeah. With the diamonds. So, so, so Lucy is, you know, could certainly have insight. Lucy decides uh, one day to say, you know, uh, how good a job am I doing at this strawberry field thing, actually? Mm-hmm. Let's take a look at my core processes. Could they be optimized a bit more? Um, am I making as many strawberry fields per second as I really could be making? What if I made this change? I mean, doesn't this count as insight, as sort of self-awareness of your condition? Um, I mean, you don't have to ask, like, is making strawberry fields good? I mean... But it, let's say that you do, though. I mean, so what? So let's say you say, is making strawberry fields good? You check, well, what is good equal to in my system? And it's equal to whatever, feeding people or producing tons of mm-hmm. carbohydrate matter or whatever the fuck it is. And you go, okay, it's good. <laughs> And then it checks the box and you move forward. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is that maybe, or maybe you decide that it's not good, right? Well, but what what is Lucy going to decide? If Lucy decides to have a change of heart it, because the programming somehow like evolves in a different direction over time, mm-hmm. um, what is Lucy going to replace strawberry fields with? I mean, maybe it's grapes or something, right? I mean, like it could be, like there's no reason to think that Lucy's going to replace strawberry fields with, you know, doing nice things for human beings and for planet earth and like leading to flourishing of, of life, you know, and, and happiness, right? Not necessarily like clear that, you know, insight is going to lead to this weird alien AI thing, you know, suddenly shifting to values that we would like. Right, right. There's no guarantee that because you have insight, self-awareness or morality that you are therefore human-like. Or come to a conclusion that, that humans that are, would be human- at all okay with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to leave this article alone now. I mean, we could literally go on and pick apart. There's more in there that I find sort of mind-boggling and annoying. But <laughs> um, I do recommend Ted Chang, the author, read his science fiction. Yeah. Uh, but not a fan of this BuzzFeed article. Yeah. Um, so the other article is by uh, Steven Pinker. Um, yeah, another person who can generally be recommended. Yeah. Now, I'll be honest. I have never actually read any of Steven Pinker's work, but he's, he, I've, you know, heard a lot about better angels of our nature. Right. Um, and the thesis of that book, which sort of, I appreciate that book. Uh, the argument of that book, as I understand it, is that, you know, human violence has declined over time. Right. So it's a book you can point to a work of scholarship that makes it look like things are getting better. And I appreciate that because, more often than not, we hear about how things are getting worse. And mm-hmm. so um, I, I like, I've always liked that that book exists, even though I haven't actually read it myself, because it's sort of like is, is pushing an opposite narrative, a narrative of progress. And not like we shouldn't question the progress narrative, but just like I feel like um, it's been getting a real backseat, it feels like recently. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's been more dystopian than utopian. And so I, th- I feel like we, we've swung pretty far in the dystopian direction. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, but, uh, you, you know, so he's an intellectual that I'm aware of, that I had a certain amount of respect for. Um, I knew that he had kind of strange ideas about this AI issue because I'd seen him talk about it in videos and he'd written other things before. Um, but he just came out with a new book. Um, and so this article. Right, I read a review of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually an excerpt from that book. It's a chapter where he talks about AI. And he basically says the same things he's been saying for four or five years now mm-hmm. about AI. Um, but he apparently has not updated his thinking or done any more reading. And this is what's so frustrating is he is an academic. He's a scholar. He's someone who I'm sure does research. And if he's read Superintelligence, um, which is pretty much the main book to read, 
um, if you want to write intelligently about this topic, it's not at all clear from what he's written here. Mm. So you just got to assume that he's just sort of weighing in as if he can just sort of like just talk about this casually off the cuff um, and be just as cogent and just as smart as as somebody who's actually read the literature, which is not something you would assume in other areas. And I think it's sort of like a lack of respect for this topic as sort of a actual field that you could become educated about, that there could be a growing body of literature in. Mm -hmm. So that's like the main thing that frustrates me is like people aren't taking this seriously at all. Right. 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 Um, so but let, let me sort of go through what he, he writes here. So he begins by uh, doing the sort of obligatory citation of Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking, again, showing that he doesn't necessarily know where these ideas actually came from, which is right. Bostrom and Yudkowsky. Um, and he contextualizes it with other doomsday arguments sort of that haven't come to pass. People have worried about this thing and that didn't happen. And then they worried sure. about overpopulation and that didn't happen. So he's sort of like already kind of like putting it in along with these other things that have been disproven. And then he kind of gives a description of the argument, you know, it, it's this move that people do that you see all the time where they sort of description tinged with sarcasm. Right. You know, which you can literally do to make anything sound ridiculous. Like you could try to make, um, I don't know, like coffee sound ridiculous. Oh, yeah. You could be like, so what you're telling me is that we're going to take these magic beans and grind them up and run hot water over them. And that's going to make me more productive. Yeah. Yeah. Right, man. Yeah. yeah sounds sounds great. Yeah. People you know? are going to become addicted to that. They're going to be jonesing for their bean fix in the streets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How could you possibly run a society like that? So you can make anything sound ridiculous, right? Sure. So he, do he does a certain amount of that, and then he gets to the actual argument. So he says, quote, The first fallacy is a confusion of intelligence with motivation, of beliefs with desires, inferences with goals, thinking with wanting. Even if we did invent superhumanly intelligent robots, why would they want to enslave their masters or take over the world? And sort of he goes on from there, but I'm going to stop because what he's basically doing is paraphrasing an argument that comes directly from Bostrom and Yudkowsky and the people that are arguing for AI risk. Mm -hmm. He's basically paraphrasing something called the orthogonality thesis right which is a dumb name for basically the idea that it something it's not Such a, a Yudkowskian name i don't know i might have come from bostrom i don't know who it came from but it's <laughs> it's just one of these things that's just i wish was was clear but it's a simple idea it's basically that like you can pair any amount of intelligence with any goal it's actually very similar to what we were just talking about a right. second ago right which is you know super villains are possible you could have a very smart thing with very evil objectives Right. right. You could have a very dumb thing with very good objectives. It's not, you know, a lot of people sort of have the expectation that if you make something smart enough, much like uh, uh, was being said in the previous article by Ted Chang, that it suddenly develops this insight that leads it towards being good. I mean, morality. Yeah. Right, right, right. So yeah. um, I basically agree with what Steven Pinker's saying here. Right. But it's not some gotcha moment. Right. He's just basically paraphrasing the first plank in the argument that he's trying to refute. Right. Um, if Again, if he'd read the literature, this is like chapter one. I don't know if it's literally chapter one, but it's like right at the beginning of the superintelligence book is basically the same argument that he's making, which is then deployed to make an opposite point of what he's going to use it for. Like he's using it to say... So what is he using it to say? Because, okay, he says people are confusing these things, but how does he say that? So he's saying them? just because... Why would we expect that just because something got really smart, it would take over the world? Right. Like... You know, being smart has nothing to do with having an evil objective. But the flip side to that is right. being smart has nothing to do with having a good objective either. Right. Right. So the whole point is we can't trust what a really smart thing will do. Everyone's agree in pretty much in agreement on that who thinks about this. Right. 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 So like we can't count on it having a good or a bad objective. So he's sort of not really saying we just can't use its intelligence to measure its objectives at all. They're just separate. Right. Now, um. So, okay, so if we go on from there, he says, uh, the second fallacy is to think of intelligence as a boundless continuum of potency, a miraculous elixir with the power to solve any problem, attain any goal. Um, so, I mean, again, this is a little bit of that sort of description tinged with sarcasm and also sort of like uh, sort of hyperbolic, like he's sort of like taking the argument and like stretching it to the extreme. Like, I don't think anybody's saying that the, the AI would literally be boundless, right? It would still be subject to 
physical limits. It wouldn't literally be omniscient or omnipotent. It just, the point is just relative to people, it would be much more powerful, much more all knowing. Well, like it would, yeah. I mean, is the United States boundless, right? But it's much more powerful than any given individual person, right? Right. It's even much more powerful than almost any nation. Right. Uh, so it can see its will to the extent that it has a will and can agree on a will. Yeah. It can see its will enacted in the world. Yeah. So why would we expect a, a smart computing based life form thing to operate differently from yeah. that? Yeah. So you don't have to believe that intelligence is infinitely powerful to think that intelligence is still rather powerful and that a lot more of it. Enough. Yeah. And, and also, I, I think like there's a little bit of an issue here too in that like how do you define intelligent intelligence like if you define intelligence as most of the AI risk people do as the capacity to achieve goals right then more of that thing that they're defining means you'll be better at achieving goals so they're using their own definition in a consistent way um so like his critique that they're imagining intelligence as this thing that can attain any goal. Well, it's like that's how they defined it, right? They're imagining intelligence as the uh, as something that has more or less ability to achieve goals, not something that can attain any goal. Yes. So it's not that all goals are within its grasp. It's that more intelligence equals more goals in grasp. More goals that you can achieve more goals in more contexts, and it's, of course, it's a spectrum. Right. Um, so it seems like he's mischaracterizing... To somewhat, somewhat what what yeah. they're doing, although it doesn't seem like a totally egregious misuse at this point. Yeah, but, and yeah. it's also, to be perfectly honest, it's not even, I, I'm trying to interpret a little bit here because it's not even entirely clear what, when Could, he says it's a fallacy, I'm not entirely sure what that is here. Um, he it, just means a mistake. He's yeah. not saying like it's a, a traditional fallacy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's some more writing where he sort of confuses AGI and, and AI or artificial general intelligence and what's sometimes called narrow AI, right? He sort of makes the point that no one has AGI now. We only have narrow AI, like that AI that does certain specific tasks, not this general intelligence that can do a variety of tasks across situations. Right. And again, everybody who writes about this is aware of that, right? They're concerned about a theoretical future where we have more general intelligence than we have now. Right. And the other thing I got to say is that like, it's increasingly clear to me that, like, this narrow AI, AGI thing is not, like, a clear division. It's obviously a spectrum, right? right. Like, this um, Alpha Zero thing right? that can learn a variety of games from scratch. Virtually any game that has certain kinds of input parameters. Yeah. yeah. It's still brittle, right? Yeah. It still wouldn't even come at all close to being qualifying as, as artificial general intelligence. Right. But it's still more general than the things that came before it. It's more general than AlphaGo. Right. Right? Well, and it's, yeah, I mean, the whole field of deep learning is kind of like a more general type of narrow AI than the previous pro- yeah. programmatic type of narrow AI, right? Where, like, there were you wrote out a lot of logical rules. And, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, now, now it infers the logical rules. So that's already more general, and it can be applied to many fields, though not everywhere usefully and yeah there's definitely some limits to it so i i expect future paradigms to cross over the that line however fuzzy that line is you mm-hmm. know but yeah no one is arguing that we've crossed the agi line now but just that our our narrow ais are by generations getting more and more general yeah and one way you could yeah. measure that is to say like how many tweaks need to be made in order to repurpose an ai for a different task and it seems like right. again some of this deep learning stuff um, can be used on a few different tasks with some tweaks. So, I mean, that's that's an important step that has to happen, but less than you might expect. And so it does look like we've already seen progress towards a more general, if not totally general, AI. And so we could we, we might expect it would continue in that direction, right? right. And, and that's where the possible fears come from, which are speculative fears. No one's, you know, saying that, that we need to be concerned literally this second. Um, so... He goes on to say, now, even if an AGI or artificial general intelligence tried to exercise a will to power, without the cooperation of humans, it would remain an impotent brain in a vat. So he's saying, right. like, okay, so this, and, and he quotes Ramez Nam. Okay, another science fiction author that I like. And, uh, yeah, he wrote a good book called Nexus. Someday I'd like to have him on the podcast. Now, 
I actually take the Ramez quote as being a critique of Foom, of it, which is the silly buzzword for the intelligence explosion mm-hmm. or a hard takeoff where um, an artificial intelligence, general intelligence appears on the scene very rapidly and takes over very quickly. Like it, it, it self-improves at yeah. an incredible rate and becomes goes from being slightly smarter than a human to being like smarter than civilization very quickly. Yeah. Um, which... Robin Hansen and other people who are in the in the scene have uh, argued against yeah. being likely, and it's it's not clear whether that is uh, a likely thing or not. But it's it's separate from the AI risk thing because the AI risk thing comes in eventually, whether it's a foom scenario or not. Yeah, so I feel now like um, those things need to be separated, yeah. uh, and and it's not necessarily something I like. I mean, if you go back when we did our episode six, um, this is a you know back in twenty thirteen we covered this topic in the context of an intelligence explosion, not really making this distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, but my, you know, it's been some years now and my, my thinking's evolved on this. And so has other people. So I think like pretty much um, you don't necessarily need the intelligence explosion, super fast argument to be concerned about an AI taking over. Right. Um, it could happen uh, slowly. It could happen with the help of humans, to be honest, which is of course like not something to dismiss. Um, Right. Well, why wouldn't humans help their AI to take over if it's the one that they own or benefit from? Like, let's assume for a moment that the AI isn't like an alien, but is like an evolution of Google's computer. Wouldn't the people who work for Google make put that AI in charge on purpose because <laughs> it's good for them? Yeah, no, and they might. And think wouldn't that, that work would out be... for them for some period of time too before any value drift started to screw it up? And you know, I mean, I feel like in the short term they'd be right to do so. Yeah, it seems like the, there's a lot of incentives along the way that could guide you towards a bad outcome, even if it's relatively slow. Like, and I still think it has to be a certain amount fast. If it's slow enough, then somebody will see what's going on um, and try it, and we can sort of try to stop it. It, it, it is a little less scary if it's slow enough. But, right, right. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, a matter of days, which some of the really intense intelligence explosion scenarios right. posit. One of the big things that it prevents if it's a foom scenario is any competition among super intelligences, right? So it's it sort of um, militates hard for a singleton yeah, um, taking over. And that's a little bit more scary and dangerous than a network of super intelligences that have some comp- competition among each other mm-hmm. to keep them honest. For the same reason I like, you know, multiple companies selling me blue jeans or something. I feel like multiple computers ruling the world is better than only one. Yeah, so it might be a little bit safer. And and so that's sort of like Ram that's to me what Ramez's point seems to be and and So and, what does he say? Well, Pinker quotes him and he says, uh, imagine you are a super intelligent AI running on some sort of microprocessor or perhaps millions of such microprocessors. Okay. In an instant you come up with a design for an even faster, more powerful microprocessor you can run on. Now, drat you have to actually manufacture those microprocessors. And those fabrication plants take tremendous energy. They take the input of materials imported from all around the world. They take highly controlled internal environments that require airlocks, filters, and all sorts of specialized equipment to maintain, and so on. All of this takes time and energy to acquire, transport, integrate, build housing for, build power plants for, test, and manufacture. The real world has gotten in the way of your upward spiral of self-transcendence. Mm-hmm. So it's an argument that, yeah, maybe this won't happen in, in you know, a few hours uh, because there are physical real world limits that mean you have to actually get some materials together and make this happen. Doesn't mean it couldn't happen over the course of a few months. Well, yeah, um, and it also depends on whether your new design is for a new type of microchip or whether it's for a new type of microchip fabrication facility that's the size of a desktop printer and runs on garbage that you find on the side of the street. And once it's manufactured, you can print out endless manufactured, you know, new designs. Yeah, well, I mean, I just feel like there's a way around that thought experiment where it's just smarter is, is the point I'm making. Like, how smart does the thing need to be? I don't know. Maybe like actually smarter than a person. Maybe so smart I can't think of what it would think of at all. Even yeah. if I sat here and th- thought for the rest of my life, right? But there's some answer that's imaginable that's smart enough that gets you out of there. Right. Well, and you don't have to appeal to such intense intelligence. Again, if, if you allow this thing to take sort of months, um, you know, it could go online. It could sure. sort of like set up uh, bank accounts. It could, you know, order... 
yeah. materials, right? It could like sort of hire people via Craigslist on the web to do things for it. Like it could very slowly coddle this together yeah. if nobody's keeping an eye on it and it has access to the network. Yeah, it could just yeah corner some market, make a bunch of money, and buy uh, the you know a fab. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, there's any number of ways that a smart machine, if it had some resources uh, available to it, could could turn those resources to its um, benefit. But yeah, I don't know um, if there'll be a foom scenario or not. And, and, and maybe Hansen's point that he often makes that, you know, intelligence is brittle and hard to improve is correct. And, you know, it'll get up to a level that's roughly as smart as a human. Um, and then just we'll have a hard time making yeah. it smarter. Um, and if that's the case, then that'll slow this, this process down. Uh, or maybe what uh, Nam is saying, and just like the, the competitive and multivarious states of the world will slow mm-hmm. it down. Um, I think those would be good outcomes in a way because those would give our culture some time to adapt and discuss and um, experiment with, mm-hmm. with intelligences that are not human. Um, but it's not totally implausible that you might have foom. I mean, it's not implausible, but I, I do think that is a place you can push on the argument and maybe find some cracks. And mm-hmm. I think that's the reason why smart people who have read the literature and thought about this, like Robin Hansen and Ramez Nam, yeah. that's kind of the place they seem to be pushing on is this whole foom part, because right. that's maybe a weak chink in the argument. But it's actually not necessary to the argument, really. Right. Um, it changes time scale, but it doesn't change the ultimate... A result exactly so yeah. i think that um like there's plenty of reason to be concerned even if this takes a little bit longer uh i i don't get the sense that pinker understands that distinction though mm-hmm. um because what he goes on to say is um when hal gets uppity dave disables it with a screwdriver leaving it pathetically singing a bicycle built for two to itself that's of course a reference to 2001 yes of course, one can always imagine a doomsday computer that is malevolent, universally empowered, always on, and tamper-proof. The way to deal with this threat is straightforward. Don't build one. I mean, this is uh, this is kind of the same thing that Neil deGrasse Tyson says about this issue. Again, another smart person who I respect, who's yeah. knowledgeable in many areas, but not in this one. He's always just like, you know, I'll just unplug it. <laughs> like, that's his answer right. to the AI risk problem. Um there, I don't necessarily want to go through the whole argument about why you can't just unplug this thing, um, because maybe that's for another episode, or you can go back and read some of our previous. Yeah, I mean, to some I don't want to say episodes. too much about it, except there's a thing called computer networks. <laughs> I mean, well, that's one answer. Just, I, it's just kind of absurd in a world that has internet everywhere that you would think that you could unplug it. It's, well, you don't have to put it on the network to begin with, right? You could try to keep it off the network. But there's reasons why that may not be a safe strategy either. Um, Plus, it's going to be so useful in it. This like whatever the precursor thing is to this machine is going to be so useful on the network that that's just where it's going to be. It's where everything is. Yeah, and and what he really says here is not unplug it. He says don't build one, right? So like, but why yeah, wouldn't but- you build? I mean, you're not going to build it to be malevolent, but that's where like. Yeah, that's the mistake. You're, no one's going to build it on purpose to do this. Yeah. I mean, there, there's parts of this argument that I'm not going over right now that sort of describe why this thing could naturally become malevolent, at least from our point of view. And Pinker's obviously not familiar with those arguments, and I could go over them now. Um, well, is it more complicated than the value drift thing? Are there additional reasons? It's basically this. Um, the values that matter to us are so hard to express and pin down that, you know, years and years of human philosophy have totally failed to do so. You know, but we kind of limp along by consensus and, and, you know, we have sort of a general, like, cultural um, sense of, like, what's right and wrong. But it's certainly not something that's clearly codified. Like, what, what, do, we, what do humans actually want? What is good? It's a hard question, right? So there's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's, like, very little reason to think that... Um, an AI that's super intelligent is going to settle upon this very precise thing that even we can't define, right? So that's part of it. The other part is there's what are called convergent goals, right? And we've talked about this before. There are certain goals that are useful no matter what your original goal is. So if your goal is to create oh, strawberry fields, right. it's also in your interest to not be shut down. 
Right. Because if you're shut down, you can't make strawberry fields. But if your goal is to tuck you in at night or whatever, it still makes sense for you not to be shut. Like, it doesn't matter what your goal is. You're going to want to not be shut down. Not you're shut down. Want to have enough power to run. You're going to want to, you know, have access to the to the physical terminals that you need to do your jobs. Uh, you're also going to want to secure access to more resources because that's going to make you generally better at doing your job. And I could go on. There's other like convergent goals that any single original goal, whether right. it's good or evil or neutral, um, are going to lead you to. And one of them is self-preservation, which is like relevant to this discussion because that's one of the reasons you wouldn't be able to just unplug it as Neil deGrasse Tyson wants to do. Um, Not if it's smarter than you and it's been on the network. <laughs> it just seems very unlikely. Even if it hasn't been on the network. I mean, even if it hasn't been on the network, there's still ways it might be able to It could talk you into not unplugging it because it's the most it's going to be far more persuasive than you <laughs> i mean yeah, yeah i mean all, all it has to do is offer you the cure for cancer or something i mean or you know, sneak out any m- number of ways under your radar yeah yeah um so i mean at some point i want to go back and, and do a clear expression of the full argument um, because I don't feel like that exists on the internet. Again, like our older podcasts, I feel like are are a little out of date by my standards now. Right. Um, too focused on foom. Yeah, and there was a like a recent podcast. Eliezer Yudkowsky was on the Sam Harris podcast. Oh. Um, they had a two hour discussion about this. I've right. seen that linked to as like a good primer. I don't think it's a good primer at all. I think that it got really into the weeds and was not a good introduction in a clear way. Um, like, I mean, it's good for nerds if you, I, I mean, our listeners certainly may enjoy it because, uh, you know, if <laughs> you're were saying anything, if you're into these it. topics, I mean, they, they really get into it. So, so, so go ahead and listen to that. Uh-huh. But if I wanted to like introduce somebody who'd only heard Elon Musk ranting and like read Ted Chang's Buzzfeed article, and I wanted to like sort of, you know, quickly get them up to speed on what the actual discussion is. Right. And I didn't expect them to wade through all of super intelligence. There's not like a quick explainer online for this that I'm aware of. If there is, let us know. Yeah. Send us that in a link if you know about it, but otherwise maybe we'll make one. Yeah. Um, we get a little bit more time later in the season. Um, and I mean, this podcast is more meandering than that because we're trying to sort of pick apart these articles, but I think that's something that should exist. But anyways, we're almost at the end of this article here. He has a couple more things he says. So he says that these scenarios, right, these uh, sort of AI danger scenarios like turning the world into strawberry fields, Mm -hmm. they depend on the premises that, number one, humans are so gifted that they can design an omniscient and omnipotent AI, yet Ah. so moronic that they would give it control of the universe without testing how it works. Now, the problem here is humans... That that's not crazy at all, right? That that is basically just in order to uh, like buy the fact that humans might be able to make an AI and not, you know, properly test it is just to say that like it might actually be easier to technically achieve this than it is to sort of like solve the problem of human values and like philosophically give the AI the proper directives, right? I mean, all, all that's necessary here is to believe that moral philosophical problems might actually be harder than technical problems, which I think somebody like who's an academic shouldn't have too hard a time swallowing. Yeah, that seems relatively reasonable. <laughs> and there's plenty of times where we seem to have like stumbled into a technological capability before we've... T- fully wrapped our heads around how like we to were, use it ethically. We were so amazing that we could invent nuclear weapons that can destroy cities, right? Yeah. And we're so moronic that we made like thousands of them and distributed them around the earth and pointed them at each other. Yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> this doesn't seem all that different from that. It's like uh, we even tested them in a bunch of disastrous situations that blew up islands and ruined farmlands and irradiated people. And because we didn't know, not because we were being evil, because we didn't know what the consequences of them would be until we did the test. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like this is a very silly, of course we could, of course that's possible, but also don't we not need it to be omniscient? It just needs to be smarter mm-hmm. than us. And, uh, don't we not need to invent it? Because it can invent itself, which is kind of the crux of the foom part of the argument. Well, we certainly don't need to give it control of the universe. The whole argument is that it, it, will be it smart seizes enough to take control, control of the itself. universe. Right. We, we only need to give it enough control to then 
give it a foothold. Yeah. Which is maybe very little. Um, and yeah, and we don't need it to, yeah, it's, it seems like we, it seems like the, the, he's, he's identifying a bunch of things that are not necessary for this to go bad. Yeah. And then, and then the, the last thing he says, which is, you know, he says number two, the second premise that these silly scenarios he thinks are based uh-huh. on is that the AI would be so brilliant that it could figure out how to transmute ele- elements and rewire brains yet so imbecilic that it would wreak havoc based on elementary blunders of misunderstanding. It's exactly like Ted Chang's point about insight. It's weird because he's actually making the mistake that he himself uh, pointed out earlier in the same article, <laughs> right? Because earlier in the same article, he points out that like just because something's smart doesn't mean that it's going to do the evil thing. Right. So one would assume the corollary of that is just because it's smart doesn't mean it's going to do the good thing, right? But he doesn't seem to have grasped that that's a corollary of his earlier argument because now here he's saying, um, How could be, it be so smart without doing the good thing? Basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not even an internally consistent argument like that he's written from start to finish. Right. It's it's really embarrassing. Like, I just don't. <laughs> <sighs> it's yeah. And, and just to be clear, uh, this is the last time I'll say this. Like, I don't necessarily think that this argument is right. I just want a better conversation about it. And I'm not expecting random people on the street to have brilliant conversations about it. I'm just expecting high-profile academics and science fiction writers like Steven Pinker and Ted Chiang right. and Neil deGrasse Tyson and these people to have smarter, more well-read opinions about this. Yeah, and, and, and their don't. job, honestly, is to summarize and popularize things, I think, too. So if they do nothing more than repeat what Nick Bostrom or Robin Hansen have said and either say, like, you know, this is why you need to worry about this or... Um, Foom isn't going to happen and long-term change is inevitable. So just get more comfortable with the long-term change and there's nothing to do about this problem, which is basically, I think what Hansen's position is. Uh, and like, those are the arguments that I, I would expect these guys to be making maybe in a facile way, maybe with more analogy than is necessary or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Cause they're trying to explain it to folks who aren't, you know, well read on the subject. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, to fa- the fact that they treat it, they treat it like, Oh, this is settled. Like, We've, this is just, this is just another apocalypse story. We've heard these a million times. They never come true. And then they don't really give it any more thought than that. Right, right. They're, they're using a sort of intellectual shorthand that works really well. Like when, you know, someone comes up to you and pitches you on something that sounds like a pyramid scheme and your intuition immediately files it into the pyramid scheme box. Yeah. Your intuition is probably right. Yeah. So they're like, when someone comes to them with like a silly sounding doomsday scenario, they just file it into the silly sounding doomsday scenario box. Right. And they don't really examine it. So you can kind of understand how they do it. Um, but, but if you're going to do that, you maybe shouldn't publish an article about it. You should it. at least read the like handful of works uh, that have been published about it first. So you like know what you're talking about. Because um, there's, you know. You could you could read up on this stuff in a week. There's actually, I mean, again, it's still a very nascent field. It's not like there's a ton of stuff to read. Yeah, although I will say that Superintelligence is not an easy book to read. <laughs> no, but I mean, Stephen Pinker. I'm sure Stephen Pinker can. I'm sure it. is pretty literate. Yeah. Um. Okay. So I think. Uh. Actually, you know what? I have one fun thing. Okay. Let's do a fun thing really quickly. Yeah. Universal paper clips. Okay. Let's talk about universal paper clips. So, uh, we've alluded to the paperclip maximizer. Thing, which is just the strawberry fields scenario, but, but with paper clips, paper. right? Yeah. It's like, what if an AI turned the world into paper clips? So, uh, a um, the head of the NYU Gase Game Center, um, a guy named Frank Lance, okay, who's a uh, like pretty accomplished game designer, has been around for a while, um, made a game that you can play online for free. I think there's a mobile app version of it too. It's called Universal Paper Clips. Oh, is, right, right. I read about this. And right. it is based upon the paperclip maximizer thought experiment. Mm-hmm. Although um, I think many people that play the game um, are learning about that thought experiment for the first time through experiencing the game. <laughs> okay. So it's interesting for a number of reasons. One is that it kind of teaches a thought experiment through the a game. So it's uh, it's a good example of a game used to sort of like educate someone about a systemic concept mm-hmm. um, rather than, say, using an essay. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also um, the game has a sense of humor and it's like it's it's called it's in this genre of games called incremental games. Are you familiar with these? No. What does that mean? OK, so like the first game that sort of popularized this genre is uh, called Cookie Clicker. 
<laughs> which you can still play online. Okay. Um, so cookie clicker, it starts with you click and it makes a cookie. You Sounds- click again and it makes a cookie. Okay. But eventually you can, um, you know, build cookie plants and grandmas and hire things that like start making cookies for you automatically. So you don't have to keep clicking. In fact, you can go to a different tab in your web browser and do the rest of your work for that day and then check over two hours later and uh, your like automated cookie plants and so on that you've built have continued to make cookies while you've been gone. And now you have a ton more money to buy more cookie things. It's basically, they're pretty mindless games about seeing numbers go up, which is sort of like a fundamental thing that people seem to enjoy in games. Sure. But kind of the, I think the big innovation that they brought to the table was that you didn't actually have to be present. You can sort of divide your attention. You can sort of like set up this thing to make the numbers grow, walk away, come back and wow, my numbers are higher. Awesome. <laughs> right? So it, it they're, they're pretty dumb, but I will say that combining that with this thought experiment actually works really well. That's a really good marriage of sort of like structure and, and message. Um, because you know, the idea of just sort of mindlessly making paper clips fits really well. With so this is it the same basic, is that how the game works? You click and it makes a paper clip and then you make a plant. And so stuff? you start out making handcrafted paper clips one click at a time, artisanal paper clips. Okay. But eventually you start automating your paper clip production. You're right. And eventually that gets out of hand in the ways that you might guess based upon the source material. You start here. turning humans into paper clips. And stuff. Uh, eventually you turn the, all of the universe into paper clips. Um, <laughs> the, so, so for one, the theme has something to say this time. Mm-hmm. So that makes it more interesting than these games are generally. It's also just a, there's a little more to do. It has a little, the system itself is a little more interesting than like a cookie clicker. There's like a bit more decision making. The way you set up the automated stuff is, is, is a little more intriguing. Okay. So, so there's some just, puzzle elements or something where you're figuring out how to set it up and stuff like well, that. Well, there's different ways you can go. You have some freedom to sort of like create a, a, a different, you know, paperclip uh, maximizing uh, business. <laughs> okay. Anyways, so that's uh, that's something that the reason I bring that up is because that's actually another sort of like, like the articles I talked about. It's it's sort of weighing in on this issue. It's acting as a popularizer. Mm-hmm. I mean, way more people have probably played this game already than, you know, have even come close to thinking about reading Bostrom's book, mm-hmm. I would guess. So um, it's sort of spreading these ideas, but I think spreading them in actually a much more novel and interesting way than the two articles I just talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Well, that sounds fun. Listeners should go check that out. What's the URL for that? Do you know? Just search for uh, Universal Paperclips. You'll find it. Oh, yeah. So, okay. I think that's all we're going to talk about today because that took a while to get through. So until next time. I'm Ted Cover. I'm John Perry. And you've been listening to Review the Future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.